Well, hey, good morning, Harvest. How we doing? Good, good. Hey, do me a favor. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Luke 18. We're going to be in Luke 18 this morning. We're continuing our study on the parables of Jesus that we've been working through this summer. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. We have people coming down the aisles right now who'd love to get a copy of God's Word into your hands. We're going to be in Luke 18, just the first few verses. Um, we're going to look at a uh, parable this morning that's very, very simple, very, very straightforward, but very, very convicting and very, very challenging. And uh, this is a transitional weekend uh, for our family. This is, uh, today is my kids' last day of summer vacation. School starts on Mondays. Anyone else, like any moms in the room, like so pumped to get kids back in school and ready for the fall to happen? Wow, you guys are way better parents than I am. Like we're so excited and so ready for school and routine um, to happen again. I'm a, I'm a fall guy, so um, summer's been amazing, but I'm looking forward to the change of seasons. And uh, if you have your Bibles open to Luke 18, um, I just want to read verse 1 with you, and that's going to kind of set the tone for where we're going. It's very, very clear. Jesus makes it very simple about what we're going to talk about. It says this, And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. All right, so Jesus is like, listen, the purpose of this story is I want to talk and teach you guys about what your prayer life should look like, and I want to encourage you not to lose heart or not to give up. So what we're going to talk about this morning is the idea of prayer, and prayer's interesting, isn't it? Like, prayer's an interesting animal. Here's why. I don't think there's really anything in our Christian walk that makes us feel more guilty than prayer. And here's what I mean. I think if I were to ask you, and, and, and if I could talk with you one-on-one, -on -one and I were to ask you the questions, hey, do you think that God hears you when you pray? Right? I might have to argue with some of you, but most of you would be like, yeah, you know what? He does hear me. He, he for sure listens to me when I pray. He's a loving Heavenly Father. And then if I were to ask you, all right, does he respond to your prayers? Is there power in prayer? I think most of us would be like, yes, there is for sure power in prayer. But here's the thing. I see you shaking your heads at me. So even though we know that God hears and that there's power in prayer, I would say so often the one thing that we know we should be doing, we so often fail to do, right? Like, let me put it this way. Do me a favor. Let's be honest in church. Raise your hand if you would say that even though you believe that prayer is powerful and vital, you still struggle to consistently have a vibrant prayer life. Okay, good. So we're all in this together, right? We've all admitted it. Okay, so this is what normally happens when we talk about prayer, right? right? We read in a devotional or you hear a message that, hey, we, you know, we really need to be praying and seeking the Lord, and it's like a, a guilt fest, right? And I'm like, all right, we should be praying. We should be praying. Don't you know that God hears? Why don't you pray? Your life would be so much better if you prayed. And it's like, yeah, I know, I know, I know. I really should do it. And if you're type A, you're like, all right, this is the moment. And you like put a, a, a reminder in your phone that's like, I'm going to wake up 15 minutes early and I'm going to pray this week. It's going to happen. And then it happens on Monday. And if you're super type A, you make it like all the way till Thursday. But then it just kind of whittles and fades and goes into the background and um i just want to hear you i just want you to hear me the, the goal this morning is not to make us feel guilty 
Um, the goal is for us to better understand the heart of our Savior and the heart of our God, which I'm praying is going to transform how we think about prayer, which is going to make us want to run to prayer in a way that is um, just beautiful and in a way that's super helpful for our lives. So what I want to do first is um, I want to talk about two reasons why we struggle to pray. We need to know why it's broken if we're going to understand um, how hopefully the Lord will fix this in our hearts. Here's the first reason we struggle to pray, and I think this is the big one. Um, I, we struggle to pray because we think God is disappointed in us. I, I think this is, if we were honest, the number one reason we struggle to pray is we look at our hearts, we look at our lives, we know how fallen we are and how much we still struggle with sin, and this is how we view God. It's like, listen, I know that Jesus died for my sin, and I know that God loves me, I'm a child of God, I'm in his family, but God's just frustrated with me, and he's disappointed in me because I'm always messing up. And if you were growing up and you got in trouble, it's like you knew that your parents still loved you and they weren't going to like sign you up for adoption. They weren't punting on you. But in the moment when you just got in trouble, like you weren't hanging out and right in front of your folks face all the time, right? You're like, I've got to let them calm down. I've got to let this settle. I've got to let this storm pass. And then you kind of like slowly enter your way to kind of test the waters, see how mad mom and dad really are. And I think we're like that with God all the time. Like, I know that we're children of God, and I know that he's forgiven us. But man, he's probably sitting up in heaven being like, man, there was probably better people to die for than for Cal. He keeps messing up his chance. He keeps blowing it. And um, I, I think we struggle with this lie that God is disappointed. And I need you to hear this. It's not true. It's not true that Jesus perfectly and willingly paid the penalty of every sin you've ever committed. So when God looks at you, he has nothing in his heart but love for you. And he adores you and he's proud of you and he delights in you. And he wants us to come to him. In Isaiah 55, 1 and 2, this passage is just amazing. It says this, this is God talking to his people. He says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear, come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast, sure love for David. Okay, here's what's so cool about this passage. This idea when he says, come buy wine and milk. All right, wine in that culture was representative of joy. All right, wine meant joy. It made your heart glad, and milk represented strength. So what God's saying is, listen, do you want to have joy in your life? Come to me. Do you want to be strengthened? Do you want to have more strength? Come to me, and I'm giving it away for no price. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to have any money. You can have done nothing to deserve it. But if you come to me, I will willingly give it away. And it's like, man, God, that sounds too good to be true. So God proves that he will do that by verse 3 when he says, listen, and I will make for you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. And it's interesting that he uses David here because what we know about David is he had some pretty spectacular failings in his life, didn't he? Like David, there was a moment and season in his life where he got really, really lazy. 
And rather than going out to war with the kings like he should have been, he stayed in the palace. Life got on cruise control for him. And then he fell into adultery. And in order to hide his sin, he then murdered the husband of the woman he was sleeping with to to cover up his sin. And and, and he um, just has a track record of being selfish and, and, and having some wicked actions in his life. Right? Like I would argue if we rolled out our list of sins, um, David beats most of us. And what God says is, but listen, I've made a sure, or I've made an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. And he's saying, listen, if I can love David for sure and forever and it's not changing, then for certain everyone can be invited in to this relationship. Um, how many of you have been to a wedding this summer, right? We're kind of getting through wedding season, but a lot of us have attended weddings. Um, this is, I have in my hand right here, this is a wedding invitation. And um, wedding invitations are really, really important because if you show up to a wedding without an invitation, people get angry with you, right? They're like, why are you here? Why are you eating my food that I paid for? So what happens is, is when you have a wedding, you, you have your list of people that you're like, this is who I want to be at this celebration. This is who I want to be at this party. And you send them an invitation. And when you receive the invitation, you're like, all right, I know that I'm wanted. I know that if I say that I'm coming and if I show up, it's not going to be weird for anyone. Listen, you need to hear this. God has given us all the invitation to come enter his joy and his strength that he willingly gives. And it's free. He's not disappointed with us. Here's the second reason we struggle to pray. It's this. Um, We think we're in control. We struggle to pray because we think we're in control. And what I mean is, is a lot of us, I believe, have really good theology in our head about God. But in our lives on the ground, we live like functional atheists. And it's like, man, I can handle everything. And I'm going to do everything in my own strength. And I'm going to plan and I'm going to problem solve. And I'm going to figure out things for myself. And I've got this. I don't need anyone. No one else is looking out for me but me. And we forget that we have a lovingly heavenly father who wants to help us. And we're like, no, no, no. I've got to do it by myself. And then what prayer turns into is prayer is the Hail Mary pass we throw when nothing else is working or everything's out of our control. Right? It just turns into like this last gasp. I don't know what else to do, so I might as well try prayer. And again, the goal is not to make our prayer life about us this morning, but it's for us to simply see God's love and God's heart. And we're going to see this modeled so well in the story he tells. Here's the big idea. Super simple. It's this. A right view of God and his love always leads to increased prayer and hope. A right view of God and his love always leads to increased prayer and increased hope. And I think the thing that's stopping us from maybe praying like we would want to is that we've misviewed or misunderstood how great God's love is. Look at verse 2. Here's what he says. Jesus says, In a certain city uh, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. And for a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not continue to beat me down with, by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes... Will he find faith on earth? 
All right, so Jesus tells this story. He says, I want you to understand this because this is going to teach us how to pray and not give up. And he tells this story about this ruler who, who's living in this, this make-believe village. And it says that he doesn't fear God or respect man. All right, this guy is selfish and he is wicked and he only cares about his wealth and his power. And he says, in that village, there's a widow who, who is asking every day, give me justice against my adversary. Give me justice. Give me justice. And for the while, the king's like, I don't care about this. Leave me alone. But after a time, like the, the woman kind of beats him down with her continually approaching him and begging him over and over. And he's like, fine, I'll give her what she wants. And then Jesus turns it and says, all right, so if the wicked king will give the woman her justice because she continually persists, won't God, who's loving and gracious and good, so quickly respond to us when we come to him over and over again with our requests? Like, don't miss this. Jesus is saying it's okay to persist and it's okay to pester God with our prayers and our problems. Like, this should be a glimpse into how awesome God's love is for us and how different it is from our ability to love. Like, when my kids pester me, I'm not pumped about it. Right in, in my um, family, I've got four kids. Um, my third oldest is Bo. He's my oldest son. He's six. He's the family pesterer. All right, this kid is relentless. He doesn't give up, and he's super manipulative. So here's what he does. Like he is like wild about baseball right now. Just wants to play catch with me. Just wants to play baseball. So I get home from work, and it's like 5:30, and I walk in the door, and, and this is how Bo asks to play catch. He goes, Dad. You know, I was just thinking that, like, I love you so much, and it would be really fun for both of us if we played catch together. <laughs> so how do you say no to that, right? So I'm like, all right, listen, I'll, I'll play catch with you. Let's go have dinner first. And, and he's like, so we'll play after dinner? I'm like, yep, we'll play after dinner. So we sit down at the dinner table, and the first thing Bo says is, hey, Dad, remember what you said? After dinner, we're going to go play catch, right? And, and I'm like, yep, Bo, but I, I want you to stop asking me. I've already told you that I would. And uh, then he gets his food and he goes, hey, dad, I'm going to eat really fast so we can play catch. <laughs> and I'm like, Bo, I told you not to ask me. Because I wasn't asking you, I was just telling you. <laughs> okay. And then he'll finish his food really fast and he'll be like, hey, dad, can you eat faster so we can go play catch? And I'm like, well, we were going to play catch, but now you're going to play catch by yourself in your room because you're driving me crazy. <laughs> right? Like there comes a limit where like I'll lose it. But listen. God's love is supernatural and it's different and he's inviting us to come in and pester him. Ask us over and over and over again. Last night in the message, I said, you know, God's a way better father than I am. And someone said amen really, really loudly and it was really hurtful. So I, I'm not going to do that and make that mistake again <laughs> this morning. But I think here's why God wants us to continue to ask. Because if I continue to ask, and I continue to pray, it means I haven't given up, right? It means I haven't lost heart. It means I'm still believing in the power and person of God. And in this passage, we're going to meet a woman who is in extremely difficult circumstances, and she doesn't lose heart. And this is what Jesus is calling us to learn from. So let's kind of walk through this woman's story. Um, it says this in verse 2. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And the title of this message, if you have notes, is Don't Lose Heart. And we're going to look at five different scenarios where Jesus is calling us not to give up this morning. Here's the first. Don't lose heart in a world that is turned from God. Don't lose heart. Don't give up in a world that is turned 
from God, right? Like this ruler, he cared nothing about God. He wasn't a, a religious person. He wasn't a follower of Jesus, wanted nothing to do with God. And he was wicked towards his citizens. Like this is the worst person to find yourself um, having ruled over you. And you need to understand the context of when Jesus is telling this story. It's in Luke 18. They're literally on their way to Jerusalem for the last time. And Jesus knows, we're going to go into Jerusalem, and they're going to arrest me, and they're going to crucify me. And then after I rise from the dead and I ascend back into heaven, he's looking at his disciples, and there's 12 of them. And he knows that Judas is going to betray me, and he's going to commit suicide. He's going to hang himself. Um, and out of the other 11, 10 of them are going to die as martyrs. They're going to be beaten. They're going to be arrested. They're going to be stabbed. They're going to be thrown off the Temple Mount. They're going to die brutal deaths. For following me. And then the one who lived, he will have been tortured and exiled on an island, John. So he says, every one of these guys, for my name's sake, are going to be rejected by the world. And I think he's looking into his disciples' eyes and he's saying, listen, it's going to get very, very difficult for you. Don't give up in a world that has turned from God. And I think this is such an important word for us right now as followers of Jesus Christ in America, isn't it? Like I would say in 2019 in America, I think it would be probably pushing the envelope, envelope too far to say that there's like outright persecution happening against Christians. I don't think we're there yet. But here's what I would say. If you hold a biblical worldview and you believe that the Bible is the word of God and that God is our authority and not man, life's for sure starting to get uncomfortable for us, right? Like there's for sure like certain segments of society that we're not going to be allowed into. We're going to be seen as at best um, just inferior uh, intellectually backwards and at worst as bigots or, or hateful people. Even though that's not who we are. Right. There's for sure an un uncomfortable sense. And we're already kind of seeing it play out in the church where churches are being like, all right, how do I affirm Jesus Christ, but how do I still stay accepted by society? And there's this tightrope walking and some people are punting on doctrines of the Bible because they're trying to figure out how to navigate a culture that's turning from God. I remember just this week was watching a movie with Mary. It was like on Thursday night or Wednesday night, something. And, and it was just a comedy, a romantic comedy. And, and in the movie, there was these two guys and they were best friends. And they did everything together. They supported each other like they were like brothers. And about two-thirds of the way through the movie, um, one guy found out that the other guy was a Christian. And he's like, I can't be friends with you if you're a Christian. You're a moron. And like they kind of laughed about it and made a joke. And it's like, man. So it's, we're at a point where it's openly accepted to mock Christianity in the public sphere. That, that's where we're heading and so here's what happens. I think in the church, there's three common responses we have to a culture that's moving from Christianity or from God. And this is what usually happens. This isn't in your notes, but I throw them up on a slide. You can write them down if you're taking notes. This is how we usually respond to this reality. The first is, is we get afraid. And it's like, all right, what, what does this mean for us? And, and are we still going to be allowed to gather together and worship? What does this mean for my kids' generation? Is, is the world going to go farther and farther away from God that it's going to be difficult for them to be followers of Jesus Christ? Like, like we get really, really nervous. What's going to happen? Second response is we get angry. And, and we um, quickly turn it into like a good versus evil, us versus them mentality. And we're righteous, and we're right, and we're good. And all those other people out there, they hate God, and they're wicked. And it's like, can you believe what this group is doing? 
Can you believe what, what, what um, Bill just got passed? Can you believe that they're allowing this in our schools? Can you believe that this is happening? I'm outraged. So we do what any outraged person should do, and we go to Facebook, right? And we vent our outrage. <laughs> um, and I think the third is, is we can despair. And it's like, man, do I really try to live like I confidently believe in Jesus Christ? Do I really attempt to be a light in my community anymore, or should we just kind of try to lay under the radar as long as we can till we die and we're out of this broken world? It's easy to give up. And, and here's what I would argue. All three of these responses are absolutely dead wrong. Everything that is happening in our culture, God is aware of. He sees, and he will use it to accomplish his purposes in our life and, and for his glory. Like, can I, can I tell you something? In heaven right now, God's not nervous about what's going on in America. Like, the anxiety level in heaven today is at zero. And so often we get to work, well, well, what happens at the elections? Or what happens if, if we go this way? Listen, God's not worried at all. He sees the whole picture. And guess what? It's going to end with him returning and him being victorious. He's not worried. And listen, and as his children... One of the gifts is we can inherit this same confidence and same peace. Like, listen, rather than being afraid, our lives should be marked by peace. We know God. We have a relationship with the creator of the universe. What do we have to be afraid of? Rather than anger, it should be love and hope. Right? We should understand that, that listen, there's nothing special or unique about us other than the fact that God's revealed himself to us. Like, we should want that for our neighbors and the people in our community and rather than despair we should press forward in confidence like listen as followers of jesus christ we should be the most peaceful confident people in the whole universe we know god don't lose hearts in a world that's turning from god in john 16 33 jesus says this the i've said these things to you that in you in me you may have peace in the world you have tribulation but take heart there it is again i have overcome the world he says, listen, we live in a broken world. It's going to be difficult. You will have problems. But I have overcome. Second um, way to not lose heart or second scenario not to lose heart in is don't lose heart in my weakness. Don't lose heart in my weakness. Look at verse 3. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. All right, so you need to understand this woman was a widow, which would have meant that socially she was in a very weak position, right? Her husband would have died. There was no one to provide for her. If she didn't have family that could pay the bills, she wasn't allowed to work. She would have to beg to, to survive. Well, like she was in a bad spot, and, and rather than her weakness causing her to be silent, she did the only thing that she could do is she went to the one with strength and with power and pleaded for help she would have been socially on the weakest level of society but her weakness did not cause her voice to remain silent this is something that paul understood well in second corinthians 12 7 through 10 he says this so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations a thorn was given to me in my flesh and a messenger of satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 
Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Okay, church, look here. All of us have moments in our life when we're weak, right? We have moments when we fall short. We have moments when we give in to temptation. We all have weaknesses. And on top of that, it's not just moments. We all have areas in our life where we're weak, don't we? And what we do is, is we spend so much effort trying to conceal those weaknesses. Conceal them from others. Conceal them from the people in our small group. Conceal them even from God as if he couldn't see. Like what I love about this woman is, is she had no ability to conceal her weakness. But it didn't cause her to remain quiet. She was going to the one with the power, asking for help. God is a loving father who sees our weaknesses, and his heart isn't to criticize us. He's not going to shame us over our weaknesses, but he wants to strengthen us. That's why he says, come buy wine and milk. I'll, I'll give you joy and strength for free. Just come to me. The exact moment when we're weak is the exact moment we should be running to the one who is strong. Third thing we see is just don't lose heart when life doesn't seem fair. Don't lose heart when life doesn't seem fair. Look at verse 3 again. So there's a widow in the city who kept coming to him saying, Give me justice against my adversary. Right, so not only is this woman uh, weak because she's a widow, but she also has an adversary. Someone has wronged her, someone is hurting her, someone is making her life difficult, and it's not fair. We don't know what the issue is. Maybe the adversary, maybe a person killed her husband. Maybe the reason she is a widow is because someone did something to her husband or to her family. Maybe it's a landlord who, who's being unfair in the prices that she has to pay or has kicked her out of her home. But she says, I've not been treated fair, and I need justice. She's asking for something specific. And I think if we were honest, I think we would say that there's nothing that causes, up to, causes us to give up and to lose heart more quickly than when life isn't fair, right? When it doesn't make sense, when I'm being mistreated, when I'm being lied about, when I can't understand what God is doing and it doesn't seem right or fair, it's so easy to give up. I don't know if you guys have been following this story, but it's kind of hit the Christian news cycle. There was a um, worship leader named Marty Sampson, and he's a famous songwriter, worship leader, was um, connected with Hillsong Worships, wrote some of the greatest songs that are sung today. And he basically came out a couple weeks ago and says, listen, my faith is on shaky ground. And I don't even know if I'm a follower of Jesus anymore. I don't know if I believe in God. I don't know if Christianity is the true way. And in saying why he was feeling like this, here's what he said. He said this, if most of humankind had a choice, would we not rid the world of the scourge of cancer or sickness and disease? Why doesn't God do such a thing? All right, so at the heart of this guy's crisis of faith, here's what he's saying. He's saying it doesn't seem fair that a good and loving God would allow cancer and sickness and disease. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't seem fair. So, so I, I don't understand. I don't even know if I can believe it anymore. I'm about to give up and lose heart. Um, first of all, you need to hear that in this specific case, there's really good answers to these questions. And these aren't things that haven't been thought about or aren't talked about in, in Christian circles. Listen, if I could sit with Marty, what I would tell him is, is you're undervaluing, like we all do, just how broken our world is and as a result of sin. 
The Bible says that when sin entered the world, that creation was literally fractured. That in the DNA of our world, there is brokenness because of sin. It's why we age. It's why we get weary. It's why we die. Sin has infected our world and broke it. So it's not as if God's just choosing this to happen. But what I would encourage him is, is, and what I would encourage us is, we need to view this world through an eternal perspective. Here's what I mean. We are living in the brief moment of eternal history where the world is broken. Right? The Bible says that our lives are like a vapor. In, in the scope of eternity, the time that we're living in right now is literally nothing. And, and it's only going to be like this for a moment. But God is redeeming all things and restoring all things to himself. Listen, we don't want this version of our world to be home. So so what sin does is it reminds us that, man, this place isn't home, but there's a new heavens and a new earth that is coming. And when God redeems everything, no one's going to be nostalgic for how, like, the way things were. No one's going to be in the new heavens and the new earth being like, man, I wish it was like it was back when, when we were living with the effects of sin. Listen, this is a brief moment. But God is restoring all things, and we have an eternity ahead of us that is free of sickness and cancer and death and mourning and tears. So in this world, when it's broken and things aren't fair, we need to remind ourselves we should never be looking for this to be home anyways. But we don't give up, we don't lose heart, but we press on and look forward to the hope of our eternity. Amen? Don't lose heart. 2 Corinthians says it so perfectly. He says, listen, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for the eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Um, Right after the services this morning, we have a kind of get things cleaned up and tear down because we have a funeral here this afternoon. And there's a man in our church who loved the Lord, who passed away. And I tell you what, if we could talk to him today, he would say, the afflictions that I just went through the past weeks have been light and momentary, and now he has entered into the eternal weight of glory. Listen, the return of Christ is the hope of the church. Is that our hope today? We need to have an eternal perspective. Look at the fourth thing we see is don't lose heart when the answer isn't coming. Don't lose heart when the answer isn't coming. Verse 4 says, for a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither, neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. All right, so the woman's asking day after day after day, and at first the judge is like, I'm not going to listen, I'm not going to answer, but she doesn't give up, she doesn't lose heart. And... Um, You know, we have these cheesy Christian slogans we tell ourselves to help us in the waiting where it's like, you know, God always answers our prayer. It's either yes, no, or not yet, right? But if we could be real, like the waiting is brutal, isn't it? Like when there's a broken relationship and you're like, God, heal this relationship, mend this brokenness, and and, and it doesn't feel like he's answering, it's difficult, When there's a child who's gone rebellious, and I've met with parents who are heartbroken and praying for their kid, but but it doesn't seem to be getting better, it's easy to want to give up and lose heart. And and, um, it's brutal. I just, this week, 
had a kid reach out to me, a, a young person in our church, and he said, hey, there's some difficult things going on in my life, and I'm praying about it, but he's like, I think I'm praying wrong, because God's not answering. And I shared with him um, a quote from Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York, one of the greatest um, biblical thinkers in our generation. He said this, God always answers your prayers in precisely the way you would want them to be answered if you knew everything that he knew. It's in the waiting where faith grows. It's in the waiting where we make the choice to say, am I going to believe that what I know to be about God is true? Am I going to hold on to that? Am I going to believe it? Or am I going to start running around in circles and, and being led by fear or panic? God is answering our prayers, and he has our best interests at heart. He is for us, and he's perfectly good. Maybe the reason the prayer hasn't been answered yet is because the most important thing that God could do for you is he could grow your dependence, and he could grow your patience. Maybe the best possible thing God could do for you is to not give you what you're seeking so that you would be reminded not to put your hope in this world, but that our hope belongs in heaven. I don't know everything God knows, but I know that if I did, I would be amazed at how he's working in each and every one of our lives. But it's in the waiting we have to ask ourselves the tough questions. Am I going to hold on? Am I going to trust? Am I going to believe the things about God that I know to be true? Don't lose heart. And then here's the final one. Don't lose heart because God loves you. Don't lose heart because God loves you. And I love how Jesus ends this story Let's look at verse 6. He says, And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Jesus closes the parable by saying, Listen, if this wicked, miserable judge will relent over persistence, how much quicker will God who loves you and is for you and is good run to you when you bring your prayers to him? And then he says, but the question is, is will I find faith on earth when I return? Are you guys going to be willing to hold on? Listen, God's not disengaged. He's not aloof. He's not absent. The Bible says that he is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. He loves you. There's nothing that can separate you from that love. It is the thing that defines us. Listen, in this room, it doesn't matter the color of your skin. It doesn't matter how tall you are. It doesn't matter how successful you are. It doesn't matter how gifted you are. Our identity is found in one thing primarily. In eternity, there's going to be one thing that matters. Do you know and love God? Did God pour out his love on you? And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, we all have that in common. Romans 8.38 says this, For I am sure that neither life nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, so if nothing can separate us from the love of God, then listen, you need to believe this. Your failure in praying can't separate you from the love of God. It hasn't moved the needle on God's love for you at all. It is just as constant. It is just as much there. He is just as much present. But what he's inviting you into today is into an increased joy, strength, and sweetness in your life 
right now. I want to close by looking at this passage one more time, Isaiah 55, 1 and 2. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk, joy and strength, without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Can you hear God's heart towards you in those verses? Like who in here doesn't need more joy and strength in their life? I know I do. And here's what I believe. I believe that in our faith, we're always looking for what's the next thing that's going to accelerate my relationship with Jesus? Right? Like what's the next thing that's going to get me to that mountaintop experience? And we're like, all right, you know what? Maybe this fall, I'm going to get back into small group. And in small groups, it's going to be the thing that makes all the difference in my walk with Christ. Or maybe you're like, man, my, my favorite worship band, they're coming out with an album in, in, in two months. And when I hear the new songs and hear the, the new worship songs, that's really going to elevate my relationship. I mean, it's like, man, I, got, I just got to find a book. And, and the right book is going to unlock the keys to my heart and it's going to untangle all of the mess. If I could just get my hands on the right material. Maybe you're like, man, I just got to get to um, another conference. We got to have our vertical men rally again. Or when the women's conference comes in, in just a, a, a few months, that's going to be the thing that really puts me on a mountaintop and elevates it. And listen, all of those things are good. All of those things are good. But God in his word says, you want joy, you want strength. It's simple and it's free. Just come to me and pray. And I believe that if we took this seriously and if we got on our knees, not out of guilt or out of obligation, but simply because we believed that God's love for us was the greatest thing in our life, we would watch our lives be radically transformed from the inside and out and watch him move in amazing ways because he promises it in his word. I'm never running out of joy for you. I'm never running out of strength. There's always more. The question he asks us is, why are we running to the things that won't satisfy? God loves you. He's for you. And because of that, we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I'm so thankful for your um, love for us as we have um, remembered through communion this morning that you would send your son to willingly die on the cross for our sin. And God, I just love um, how you stick with us and you don't give up and you don't lose heart on your children. So God, may we look to you and not lose heart in the, the subject or issue of prayer. And God, I know even as I pray right now, it's easy to feel like a hypocrite because so often I fall short in this very thing. Forgive me for that, forgive us for that. And God, we just wanna see you rightly. We wanna be encouraged this morning by your love for us. We know that you're good, we know that you're here. We know that you are the greatest reality in our lives. God, would you fill us up with your spirit? Would you fill us up with the joy and strength that you promise? And, and would we be willing to just engage in a relentless pursuit of you day in and day out? We need that, God. You're so good. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.